following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. It's amazing, Molly. The love inside. Take it with you. Welcome back to the review of August 1990 Ghost. Joining Michael and I again is my wife, Angie. (laughs) Welcome back. (laughs) Hello. Thanks for having me. So we've all rewatched Ghost and Pete and I took some extensive notes again. Angie, hopefully you'll join us in adding your thoughts along the way too. Pete, do you want to start us off with the, the old film intro? Sure. So uh, Ghost is directed by Jerry Zucker, who you'll recognize as the director of Airplane, Top Secret, Ruthless People, First Night and Rat Race. And he also wrote the Naked Gun movies and uh, Police Squad, the short lived television series that became the basis for the Naked Gun movies uh, and the aforementioned Top Secret and Airplane and Kentucky Fried movie. Um, so my question then is who tapped him for a dramatic movie like Ghost? <laughs> Seriously, like what? This is all comedies other than First Night, but. <laughs> weird yeah so so maybe this will shine a, a little light on as we keep going here so that brings me to writer um bruce joel rubin who as it turns out was not 100 percent happy with zucker being hired to direct at first um as he actually wanted either milos foreman or stanley kubrick to direct so i mean <laughs> that's quite different can you imagine how much different this movie would have been with one of them at the helm it would have been eyes wide shut part one <laughs> yes now, Angie, I remember you in college taking a course, and I think one of your um, professors was really big on on Milos. Um, I wonder if he'd have a hot take on him taking the reins on this movie. But, uh, probably, I think it would have been way more dramatic than than it turned out to be. I don't, I don't know that Whoopi's role would have been what it turned out to be if he, if he was in charge. All right, now uh, Bruce Joel Rubin is responsible for a fairly eclectic set of films, including writing Jacob's Ladder. My Life with Michael Keaton, which is also uh, his sole directing credit. Is that one you know, Mike? I love that movie. Okay. So so actually, you have a little tie in them with uh, Bruce Joel Rubin. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know if a, I've seen that one. It's a depressing film, but it's a great movie. Awesome. Uh, other ones uh, that he's been uh, connected with, Deep Impact, Stuart Little 2, uh, The Last Mimsy. I know we're all huge fans of that one, I nice. guess. Right? <laughs> Uh, and uh, Angie will love this one, The Time Traveler's Wife. Oh, your boyfriend. <laughs> yes. Uh, for those of you who don't, don't know, um, my husband Pete has a very severe crush on Eric Bana. So he's a <laughs> huge fan of Time Traveler's Wife. He claims it's because it's sci-fi. I, I think it's because he was the Hulk or because of, <laughs> I, I know that he does love the movie Munich as well. So that's that. that's yeah. And that's, I think, where this whole thing comes from. So first of all, I think Ange likes to oversell my love of Eric Bana. I really do do like Eric Bana. And I think it stemmed from Munich, as as Michael says. 
Um, I, I just thought that was a really great movie and I got very hooked on him from that. And he's had some other really cool roles throughout time, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't remember why or when I saw time traveler's wife, but um, something about him being in it and the time travel element appealed to me. And then I just really liked the movie. So I don't know. Call me a softy, but I thought that was a good one. I, I also, I wanted to dive back to a uh, deep impact, which I always call is like, you know, the B version of Armageddon <laughs> because they came out the exact same time. And other than it having Morgan Freeman in it, that really there's like nothing I, you can actually remember about that movie other than he's in it. And it was, at the same time as Armageddon, which was 10 times as big, period. Now, do, remind me, though, in Deep Impact, doesn't the asteroid actually hit the ocean or something? I think it does, or am yes. I, 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 I do believe that it, it makes some sort of earthbound landfall and, uh, yeah, chaos ensues. So basically, at the end of that movie, is everybody's dead, though. <laughs> it, yeah, I think so. I think basically it's the prequel to Day After Tomorrow, if you think of it that gotcha. way. Gotcha. <laughs> there we go. I actually like Day After Tomorrow a lot better. <laughs> I barely remember Deep Impact. As you say, I, I think that one was kind of forgettable. Sorry, uh, Bruce Joel Rubin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ghost stars Patrick Swayze as Sam Wheat. Demi Moore as Molly Jensen. Tony Goldwyn as Carl Bruner. And of course, Whoopi Goldberg as Otome Brown, who in my mind, and I'm, I'm sure you guys may be the same, I, I feel like she stole the whole show on this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. She stole the movie. Big time. Yeah. Uh, so interesting. And again, like I said, I'd come back to this. Uh, the producers didn't want Whoopi for the part. Um, but it turns out that Patrick Swayze, having not even met her yet, went to bat for her in a big, bad way, saying he would not do the film without her being cast in the role. So Whoopi actually credits Swayze for her Best Supporting Actress Oscar win. Well, do you know who they originally wanted? No. Who's that? Tina Turner. Oh, interesting. And they actually referenced Tina Turner in the movie at one point. Yeah, they do. <laughs> That's random, though. I wonder why. Super, well, super some, random. Maybe somebody wanted to meet Tina. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. So uh, the, the last thing I'll say is continuing our game of six degrees of separation. I also realized that Demi Moore was married at this time to last month's leading man, Bruce Willis. So I don't know. Maybe this is something else that we need to look at doing each month, how we can immediately link each main movie back to each other. We've had two in a row here now that we are able to make a one uh, one degree jump from each other. <laughs> It's true. It's pretty it, cool. it is pretty cool. I do like that. We should. That's that should be a new segment for the mini episodes. How we link yes. it. Yes. Yes. So we'll do our box office thirty six degrees of separation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's dive in. Why don't you start us off, Michael? So the title on the screen shows up really, really rushed at the beginning and abrupt. Like it just kind of like boom, it's there and it's gone within like a half a second. It's like whoa, okay, the, we're in the movie and. The opening, like, pan or, or like, the, you know, the, the, the steady cam movement of the camera throughout the beginning of the title sequence is really scary. It's, like, probably the scariest part of the whole movie, if you ask me. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I, the one funny thing I was thinking about with um, how that title came on is it came on in a very similar way to Die Hard 2's, where it was like, bam, you know, <laughs> there it was, except it was only the one word versus the three. And so then, it, as you say, it was abrupt. Like, it was just a matter of frames before it, like, shot right back off the screen again. Yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. It was And weird. then on the uh, the opening, uh, you're, you're so right. I felt like, um, as we were just sort of saying, and then, yeah, the opening on this, um, it almost felt similar in my mind to something like a Stanley Kubrick opening, kind of slow and creepy and, and that dramatic music and everything going on. So maybe that was a little... Um, nod to him or something like that. 
Yeah, you know, we'll we'll go into this more later, but I feel like this this film was littered with like homages to things and metaphors to things as well throughout the whole movie. It's just like paying tribute to various things throughout the entire story. Now, the one thing that I want to point out, my family's in construction. Did everyone in the 90s do construction with no shirts on and only in all white outfits? Did you guys notice that? <laughs> like, the, it was so it bizarre. It was before Labor Day. Apparently. Yeah. yeah. I, well, one thing I'll say about the 90s, I definitely remember people wearing a lot more white. So maybe that's where that's coming from. But uh, yeah, I, I wrote the same thing down in my notes that I was really confused about not only to start the movie off, but then through the whole rest of the movie, just there's a lot of shirtlessness yeah. <laughs> that, that goes on and, and to an almost gratuitous level. Um, but I, yeah, that, it didn't seem safe to me. <laughs> like if you're doing demolition work, yeah. I think you usually want to have like your steel toed boots and some, you know, heavy kind of clothes to cover you up because you don't want something flying off and, and puncturing your skin and, and men just doing it with no shirt on. Maybe right. it was hot that day, but. I don't know. It seemed a little I, off to me. And this is an old building in New York City. Didn't they think about like asbestos at the time? You know, like hmm, <laughs> that might be a problem. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's part of the uh, the ghost thing. Maybe yeah. maybe it wasn't even the mugging. He just got caught up with the asbestos there really quickly. It's very I, coincidence. For the record, I had no problem that they did not have shirts on. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I that could really be the whole thing at the end of the day. You know, I, I think they're probably just doing a little uh, fan service for those who would be interested in that. And, you know, you get a little Demi more butt at some point. So, you know, I, I think they're trying to to cover their bases um, in this in this film. But I don't know. Carl didn't seem toned enough to be shirtless so much in the movie because he's shirtless out of nowhere several times a lot you know patrick swayze sure i get it he's always shirtless in all of his movies but but you know tony uh, i don't know not too sure yeah i mean i think if the acting were any worse in this and it's not to say that the acting is bad but if it were just a slight bit worse you'd almost feel like you were coming into like the beginning of a porno or something like yeah hey let's let's knock down this wall with no shirts on <laughs> yeah yeah baby here we go get that here stucco out of here. delivery guy hey all right get that sledgehammer yeah so so they they reference in the beginning of the movie an indian head penny and we see a penny later on in the film so this creates a Hitchcockian reference called the MacGuffin. And do you guys know what the MacGuffin is? Yes. <laughs> Film school 101, they, they yeah. slap you with that. <laughs> yeah, they hit that over your head pretty hard. But basically, for those of you guys who don't know, the MacGuffin is basically an object or an item or something that tethers the story together in different points and... Later on in the film, we get referenced back to the penny more than once. And it all kind of goes together in a way. And it's a cool little moment. And and I, I love it. I wish they focused more on it at times, but it was just kind of two cool little moments anyway. But yeah, no. And actually, I feel like they handled this really subtly. One of the things that I noticed um, that comes a couple minutes later in the movie is that they have the jar that they find the penny with um, on like their like night table and they've got the words for luck painted on it. And this was one that I was curious about because obviously, and we'll talk about this when we get later on in the movie where this, you know, plays a, a role again, 
but it almost felt like uh, maybe they cut a scene or something like that where he was painting or she was painting the four luck on there um, because they referenced that line directly. But if you weren't like looking for that jar that specifically says it on it, I, th- I think you would have missed have, it. You know, yeah, you'd have missed it in that in that moment. It's um, I, I do think there's a lot of scenes in this movie that were either trimmed short for time or hit the cutting room floor because this movie does run a little over two hours and I bet you they wanted to make it tighter at a close two as opposed to, you know, maybe two and a half, which it could have been with additional footage that probably didn't make it to the final film. Yeah. So here's a question for you guys. And I'm curious because I, I couldn't figure this out throughout the whole movie. Do you think Carl is possibly in love with both Sam and Molly? And here's why I say that. So when when Carl and Sam are walking to their office and he's like checking out Sam's suit, he's like, oh, look at this vest you got on here or whatever. You know, I was like, oh, checking him out. He's like, he's very affectionate to him at times, but he's also affectionate to Molly at the same time in different moments. And I feel like he's kind of in love with both of them, even though they don't really establish that in the movie, but it feels like a possible under like a little subtext in the film. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just always interpret it more that he's jealous of Sam. I I didn't get that feeling that that was what the, they were insinuating. I think it was just more that he was just so insanely jealous. And then once he got into the money, I think, you know, I, yeah, I just, I didn't get that takeaway. I think it was more that maybe he had a thing for Molly. He was jealous of their relationship. They moved into this, you know, kick-ass apartment. Um, that was always my takeaway from it. See, I had a funny drop where it came to the Carl character in this movie because there's a lot of times where he is kind of overly familiar with them. You know, I mean, I think there's probably a little bromance between him and Sam. Um, You know, obviously you can tell it seems like they've been friends for a long time. They're pretty tight and things like that. They kind of have their little shtick that we'll get to in the elevator and things like that. But then like one other time that I noticed like a weird little inconsistency is like later on when they're bringing the angel through the window, um, he starts calling like, hey, Sam, you're here or whatever. And like Molly sort of turns to Sam and goes like, did you invite him? You know, and it was like, it's a little weird. So like you almost get this half feeling of that maybe, you know, he's a good friend of of Sam's and maybe Molly's not as keen on him being there. But then there's other times where, again, it seems like they're all really tightly knit. So really? I don't know. It, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a weird back and forth with that character. Agreed. So uh, speaking of the elevator scene, God, that was awful in light of COVID. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, for those that haven't seen the, the movie in a minute, they get into a very crowded elevator at their workplace, um, Sam and Carl. And uh, kind of go into this whole shtick about how uh, uh, Carl has got this awful, very contagious cough and uh, uh, apparently a rash and, and everything like that. And all the people are getting very uncomfortable. <laughs> and uh, it, it was very funny timing. Um, I actually, uh, I haven't even told this to you, Mike. I had to take a train ride the other day on the good old Long Island Railroad, which was ugh, to say the best, <laughs> but uh, I actually ran into a, a group of uh, people, Hamptons bound, that uh, first of all, were just completely lit, but you know, the oh, that train is always, yeah. always the drunk train, but 
the other half of it is that they got on there and within about two minutes, every one of them had their mask off going like, oh, nobody's sitting around us, even though I was sitting about like five feet away from them. Yeah. And oh, man, I wanted to do what they did <laughs> on that train, walk around going. <laughs> just just see if they put their masks back on. Ugh, please. I, I, I refuse to go back on that train because of COVID. It just grosses me out. And I know of people that have been like, oh, but you know what? I got to do my makeup. I got to have my sip of coffee or it's going to get you know warm or whatever. It's going to, you know, I'm like, really? Buy your coffee in the city. <laughs> Drink your coffee beforehand. Do your makeup at home or do it, you know, when you get to the office. No one's going to care. No one cares what your face looks like anymore because it should be in a mask. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, God. So, so you, you mentioned it already, but this whole like pulling up of the angel sculpture felt like a lot of foreshadowing because there's, there's, as I said earlier, there's a lot of metaphors in this movie and, and sometimes they almost hit you over the head with them. And I'm a big advocate of show me, don't tell me. And they did a lot of that. They showed you what was going to happen or they kind of like showed you things to feel. And okay. So they're, they're all pulling up this angel and the only one that can get it in the apartment is Sam. And he does <laughs> it his flying kung fu kick. Right. <laughs> he, he was like, oh, I'm, I'm fresh off a roadhouse. Watch what I can do, guys. Check this out. I'm going to dive out of a window and, you know, the eighth floor of, a, of an apartment building in New York City. I'm going to karate kick this thing into the apartment. Okay, great. That was terrifying. Actually, uh, funny note on Roadhouse, just because you mentioned it, it made me think of, I was reading an article before we got going on this about things you don't know about ghosts. And uh, actually, Jerry Zucker did not want Patrick Swayze in this role because he had just seen Roadhouse. <laughs> he basically came out of Roadhouse and was like, no way that's happening. But then I guess uh, Swayze was uh, really staying on top of them and really begging for the role and really wanting to do it. And he auditioned with him and really liked his audition. So I guess the rest is movie history. But there you go. I thought that was pretty funny. Almost lost the role because of Roadhouse. <laughs> that's weird. Yeah. Go figure. So that mirror shot in the beginning, I know you uh, mentioned this in your notes too, was really, really cool. Um, it was simple, but well done. And it, you know, it was like, it just seemed like somebody was showing off <laughs> a little bit, you know, like the cinematographer or something, but essentially they have this shot in the movie where there's a guy carrying a mirror and he's like, where do you want this? And they're like, Oh, over there. But what you don't realize is when it cuts to that shot, you're already looking in the mirror and then he kind of starts walking away um, with the mirror. And I actually had to go back and rewatch that um, after the fact. I was driving Angela because I was trying to rewind it in the middle of us watching um, to see it. And really, it's a very simple shot. I thought maybe they had done something effects wise. No, it's um, all in camera. That's all. Yeah, no, it was really just a very clever um, framing. change of angle and framing and, and clever edit. Um, and I, it was really neat. It just kind of made it look a little bit more impressive of an effect than it than it actually was to get it. Um, so I thought that was neat that they added that in there. But did you notice the, again, there was another foreshadowing moment in there. Who's in the mirror? Carl. How does Carl die at the end of the movie? Glass. Ooh, good call. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about that. Interesting. <laughs> so here's the thing. Like I, I, people like cats I don't particularly <laughs> like cats. I'm with you, Mike. Uh, I'm not a cat person. You know, listen, no I like cats. <laughs> I, I know you do. I know you do. No judge. <laughs> no judgment no, to those who who like 
those alien creatures that we take in our homes as pets. <laughs> um, I'm allergic to them, so I don't really want them in my house. Uh, nor yeah, do I, I like I know cats. About that. I, um, I know somebody who who has that same ailment. <laughs> yeah. So too bad. The, yeah. <laughs> thank God. Uh, you know, be happy you have a lovely dog, and and just enjoy I have that. a dog that's very much like a cat. So yes, it, it your dog is like buttons. Yeah. yeah, but he doesn't make me work for his affection. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a cat in the bedroom, and you know, I forgot that the cat plays a fairly significant role in this movie in a couple of key moments. And in the bedroom, though, you see the cat kind of at the foot of the bed. And again, it's it's so quick. If you didn't notice it, you'd miss it. And and like when the cat comes back later, I was like, oh, I forgot. They have a cat. I saw it on the bed. And it's one of those <laughs> things where I was like, they needed to showcase the cat sooner to or or well, more. That's that exact scene I was referencing where you see the jar and the cat in that one yeah. moment. And like, I think you hear the cat like or something like that. It kind of, <laughs> you know, it doesn't do too much. But like, yeah, those are two very little things that if you weren't like paying attention in that one single panning in shot, I think you would you would miss it. Trucking in, I should say. <laughs> All right. So I, I noticed um, crashing airplanes are a little bit of a theme for us after last month. Um, because Sam, I noticed, was very worried that he had a uh, plane crash um, coming up. On the, he was watching one that had happened on the news. So another interesting thing that I noticed, kind of in the beginning of this movie, and I, I can't remember if it really sticks in in later parts of it, but they really are talking a lot about luck in the beginning. Again, like with the penny, the lucky penny. He's talking about you know the luck of getting a new promotion and the luck of the plane not crashing. So. It, they're it's interesting they're kind of talking as if like they need a lot of good luck going for them at this moment in their life where they're sort of doing several things but man that does not pan out for them huh <laughs> no i mean they got pretty lucky to get that ridiculously impossible apartment and art studio <laughs> in new york city that must have cost you know 14 million dollars a piece but yeah sure okay anyway so of interest i actually looked it up so uh that is a uh, location um, that depending on which website you're looking it up on is either 102, 103, or 104 Prince Street down in Soho. And uh, it actually did sell a few years back for um, like $9.2 million, Wow. Um, which seem, simultaneously seems like a lot, but also not nearly enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but who knows? I don't know if they've chopped it up since then or whatever. <laughs> who knows? So I have to say this, and this is just a, a, a point of opinion. I love Demi Moore with short hair. I think she's adorable and also seems unique in that same style as opposed to having long hair. She's had like in, in more of her recent movies, I'm thinking off the top of my head, it's like the Charlie's Angels 2 or whatever. But like that short hair was so iconic for her and just the way, I don't know, I thought it looked great on her and I thought she rocked it really well. and it works well with her character too. I don't know about you guys, but I just, I prefer Demi with short hair in my opinion. Yeah. I thought it also played into her innocence, you know, like you could really buy why she was trying to, you know, buy into what Otome was selling and, you know, what she was trying to get from her. And yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think it kind of the style of her hair and the way she dressed was very much the style of the movie and how they were filming it and her whole apartment and, artsy look absolutely no, I, I think it was very on point and, and very specific why they chose to style her that way 
Yeah, I, same thing. I loved her in this. I thought she was really cute in this role. Like, I, I haven't seen a ton of Demi Moore movies, um, but she kind of had just like a, the way she played this was like so sweet and innocent and like mousy. And like, I, I think they just did a good job with her look um, from top to bottom. Remind me, was she G.I. Jane? Yes. Yes. Oh, so there's a point in time then that I was going to say, I thought that was her. Like, I remembered them in the news and everything at the time being like, oh, my God, Demi Moore shaved her head. But maybe it wasn't such a far off cut from uh, from a, a little shorter haircut like this, too. Yeah, no, she, she did G.I. Jane and um, uh, Striptease, the one with Burt Reynolds, around the same yeah. time of one another. And then she did like a long, long hiatus until she came back for Charlie's Angels, too. And then I don't know what she's done much after that. There's maybe one or two little cameos she's made since then. But, but you yeah. know, when, when this came out and during the Bruce Willis years, she was like a massive movie star. Massive like, I just movie remember star. you always saw the two of them. They were always in the headlines. Like they were they were a big deal. Yeah, they were like a they were one of the bigger power couples of yes. that time period. Be, like before. The next big power couple, which would have been like uh, Brad and Jen, like, you know, but like they were like, oh, my goodness, if you saw them show up, they were like the it couple to have around at the time. And she was, you know, she didn't even do that many movies, but she just had this, I guess, maybe partly her name. Like, it's kind of a cool name, as well as like she got these really unique parts like she didn't do a lot of movies with the Brad Pack, but she's in a couple where like everyone's like, oh yeah, I forgot she's with the Brad Pack in this movie and that movie. And um, you know, I I just think she's one of those iconic people, kind of like a Michelle Pfeiffer, where she's almost like when she appears, you're like, whoa, it's look who it is. It's like, oh, oh my goodness, you know? No, totally. And actually uh, specifically split between this time with Ghost and then when, as you mentioned, she goes on to do striptease. At that point in time, she was actually the highest paid um, actress in Hollywood. Um, yeah, she was. She got, I think, something like twelve point five million for striptease. So that wow. was a big, big number um, for that point in time. Hmm. So um, I was surprised by the uh, clay molding scene in, in the beginning. I did not remember. First of all, and I think I said this, you know, in the the first part of our thing. I did not remember that, first of all, happening that quickly into the movie. It was like 10 minutes into the movie. It's, it's very quick. It's I thought it was much later in the film, too. Uh, yeah, and I thought it it was like, you know, I, I think I thought that it was when Whoopi took over his body that that occurred. But yeah, no, it was like right there in the beginning. Um, so that, that threw me for a little um, trip because I was not expecting that to pop up as quickly as it did. So, you know, it's funny, like, as we mentioned earlier, Patrick Swayze spends a lot of this movie when he's alive shirtless. And, you know, I, my first thought was for him in particular, the costume department had a really easy job. They're like, okay, he's either shirtless in white pants. He's got one scene with a suit. Otherwise he's dead. And he's wearing the same red and black outfit for the remainder of the next hour and a half of the film. And I love that '90s red flowy shirt. Oh, oh. it's it's very '90s. <laughs> it's like it's like almost velvety. It's like oh yeah, there you go. It's like satin. <laughs> Fantastic. No, it's true. You you can ask Ange. I kept turning to her. Why does he never have a shirt on? Why is he? <laughs> Everybody keeps going shirtless in this movie. <laughs> but it, it was kind of cool though when he's dead 
that he's only wearing the same outfit. And it kind of reminded me of the sixth sense where they, they established in that film, like after Bruce Willis died, the only clothes he wears are stuff that he wore the day that he died. So like they, they kind of cycle through different outfits, but he's always got the same sort of things on. And they did the exact same thing, obviously eight or 10 years earlier in this film, which is pretty funny. Um, yeah, I, I guess you really got to be careful with what you wear on an everyday basis. Yeah. I mean, if you accidentally walk out in the street and get hit by a bus or something, you don't want to be wearing something kind of hinky. Yeah. <laughs> now, what if, so what if you kick the bucket and you don't have a shirt on? Oh, well, I mean, well, I guess you'd fit in in this movie at least. Yeah, you would. You could <laughs> do the afterlife revival of Ghost on Broadway. <laughs> you could. Anybody remember fun. that? That little short-lived ghost yes. musical? Uh, kudos to you for remembering that. I yeah. did not. I did not yes. know that. I did not know that. I'm I glad guess, I missed yeah. it. <laughs> did you see that, Ange? <laughs> no, I think was it off Broadway? Maybe. Maybe I, off, I, off, I, I, off. Yeah, I remember Broadway. it existing, but no, I never saw that. I didn't get a chance. So I'm going to change gears for a minute, and I want to talk about some of the cinematography, in particular, in the beginning. So this is th- this is almost the tale of two movies at certain points, and the beginning takes its time. Like, even though he's dead within the first 15 minutes of the movie, the shots that lead up to that and just the establishing of the world, they take their time and they really like drag it out, but it's not too slow, but it's like a slow burn. Like, you know, something bad is going to happen, but you're kind of like, they, they do this thing where they sort of ease the tension and they let you kind of settle into the movie before the drama happens and it's funny like we watch the trailer and they show the whole movie in the trailer but like you think he's dead in the first one minute of the film from the way they establish it in the trailer but they take their time where it feels like it, it kind of has this progression where it gets to that point you know no, it's true. And actually coming off having watched the trailer and then rewatching it, I think I was maybe even expecting a slightly more intense feel to the movie just because the trailer was very like bang, bang, oh. bang, bang. And then, you know, as you say, it this kind of in a in a funny way, almost had a very ethereal flow to it. You know, it kind of it kind of, as you said, it kind of had like this like it, it never felt like it was dragging, but it kind of like felt like it was floating along through, you know, what it had to get through. Um, So I don't know. I thought it, I thought it fit very well um, to the feeling of the movie that you ultimately do end up getting not to be confused with whatever trailer house did the trailer. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. The relentless, you know, intense trailer that they had. So (laughs) going back to the whole like clay molding pottery thing, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but, um, Dory pointed this out to me right away when we were watching this movie. She goes, they're doing the pottery. They're covered in clay, covered (laughs) in clay. And then within moments, they're in like their makeout session, sexy time thing. And they're immaculately clean. There's There's not a stitch of clay under their fingernails. Nothing. It's like, okay, we're, we're we're flirting a little bit on the on the clay wheel. You know what? We need to take about a two hour shower each, and then we're <laughs> gonna come back and we're gonna fool around in in the living room. Here we go. You didn't notice the bucket of wipes behind them? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> did did wipes exist back then? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny, you know, like, I feel like there was other things back at this point in time where they'd have scenes like this and, like, the people would have paint on them or something like that. And, like, that would, like, live right into the sex scene. Like, it would go in. It's a really valid point. Good for Dory for kind of noticing that. I don't know if you noticed it since we're doing some of our our filmmaking um, kind of terminology here tonight, but there was a 180 break. Did you notice that? Yes, there there is a 180 break. And and basically, the other weird part about that is, is, like, the way the cut, it feels awkward. And if you are paying attention, you would notice it, but it's weird. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So again, for anybody that's uh, not going through film school and learned about the 180 rule, essentially there's this idea that you can't break a 180 degree plane from where your characters are. So in this instance, Demi Moore was on the left, he was on the right, and they start to kiss. And then the shot cuts to a shot essentially behind them where now she's on the right and he's on the left. And Typically, you don't want to do this. It can look like a mistake, things like that. But there's times that you might want to do this to, as you say, kind of make it jarring, kind of make it like a little bit of like a change. And so essentially, I think they ended up using this maybe semi-intentionally in order to serve as a time jump. Because as you say, the next thing is we see them, you know, doing their thing, but they're clean and in their bedroom. They've changed rooms or whatever. Um, but I, I, the funny part was that they kind of were juxtaposing this with obviously the... Uh, unchained melody which is playing on their really cool little jukebox um and you know the song comes to the end which is another kind of interesting thing in itself like they kind of let that song play so it's a long scene you know and it's not like look one of these like 90s like saxophone riff starts up and they like lean over on the bed and it cuts away to a different scene you know like they're kind of letting that scene breathe for a while and like i said you get some little demi more butt and everything like that um and him and his jeans right we didn't nobody notice what the jean brand was did they I was trying to look for that. I wasn't checking out his butt all that much. I was just <laughs> m- m- more curious by the sex dancing they were doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the other part about that is, you, you know, you, you talk about the Unchained Melody. So the song starts when she's doing pottery. Theoretically, they've cleaned up and then they're having their sex dancing moment and they're on the couch, not officially having sex because he's still in his jeans. And the song ends and you assume, how long is this song? It must have been like four hours long for this song yeah. to get to that point. You know, maybe their jukebox had a uh, repeat mode. <laughs> I, I guess so. <laughs> so uh, flashing a little bit forward here, we move past that scene and we've got him at, at work the next day. And of course, he's starting to figure out the uh, odd discrepancies in, in accounts having too much money, which, God, I, I know Carl's not necessarily a pro uh, uh, criminal or anything, but I don't know. It seemed like it was pretty obvious <laughs> right off the bat that something was going wrong there. But my favorite thing was that excellently old computer with that gnarly green on black uh, uh, characters and type. That was awesome. The, <laughs> like the Matrix that. machine? Yeah, I mean, again, I know we keep kind of talking about some of this funny technology that's been popping up in some of these past movies, but that was great. Like these little computers they had on all their desks with just this terrible, terrible green... <laughs> On black font, as you say, that yeah, really harkens back to the, like the Matrix sort of code or something. So the, 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 the question that I really had was, like, they're all able to access whatever this database is. This is 1990. How? Like, how could I go on a, like, <laughs> there's no internet. Like, how are they connected to all the devices that they could go and type in the key command on any machine 
and pull up the accounts. Like, yeah, I mean, I would venture to say that internet is around at this time. It's not mainstream, but what would be around is this sort of internal network. Um, I think that they would probably be able to access some of that information via somewhat of an internal network. I could be off on that, but I know that like as early as the eighties, some of that was starting. Um, so again, yeah, I I don't know how, how accurate it is, but I would think that in a big banking firm like that kind of wall street sort of place that they're set up at, um, they might have some of the lead ins for that, but who knows? knows? (laughs) Yeah. If there's any, uh, uh, good old networking technology people listening, feel free to hit us up on our, uh, social media and let us know, um, where we're at with that sort of thing at this point in time. I, I think it was pretty accurate. I remember my father, they had computers and they would have had an internal network that he was pulling information from. I think it's possible. Okay. I just, I was like, huh, <laughs> he could just jump to any machine and he's like, oh yeah, I can type in this six digit code and I'll get all the information I need. No, 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 no. Is that just because like you and I or whoever at this point in time would have been like floppy disking in like a game of Zork or something <laughs> like that? I was big on uh jeopardy by the way i was a big yes. fi- five and a half inch floppy jeopardy on my apple 2e by the way just putting that out there <laughs> nice actually uh, you know we're in the process of moving to this extent that next time we record we'll be recording from a whole new state but um, one of my throwaways this week has been a whole big box of um, 3.5 floppy disks so i had to before i threw them out explain to my older daughter, you're going to see this as a save symbol during your lifetime. But let me tell you what this is first. That was that was pretty funny. <laughs> Outside of this show, we need to have a conversation why you had three and a half inch floppies <laughs> in your like, you know. I We'll talk about that later. <laughs> you got it. Anyway, so <laughs> next we jump into the uh, the coming out of the play scene of Macbeth and. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. Okay. Again, like I said, this film is littered with metaphors and, you know, Shakespeare, Macbeth, you, you know, Macbeth is the one, like if you're ever in theater, you don't use that word because it's like a curse word in, in, in the theater. But it also, the way the scene plays out, it feels like the way Bruce Wayne and his parents come out of the theater and get gunned down in a in a in a crime alley essentially in New York City. And I was like, wow, this feels like Batman. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, yeah, right right in my notes, I was like, oh god, this mugger is Joe Chill. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, same thing. Like they get not the mask of Zorro, but they're coming out of this play, and then the here he comes. So yeah, I thought that was very funny, particularly with you in mind. Yeah. So it's also kind of funny when you look at this film and you see this dirty gritty new york city and it feels weird if you've ever been to the city in the last let's say 10 years or so or or better but it also kind of feels a little bit familiar like i don't know when you guys watched the the joker film but when i watched that movie and you know even though it's gotham city it's really new york city in the 70s or 80s it felt very like I remembered the city like that graffiti and garbage and just like 
grime everywhere. It was kind of interesting. Totally. I mean, when you see these set dressing people come in and do any of these period things, like it's always old cars and trash that they've decorated the set with. (laughs) And, you know, like arguably like on any given day in the city here, you might get a nice looking street or you might get a trash filled street depending on, on what's going on. But, uh, you know, I, I think from at least the modern perspective, you know, Soho has become, and probably was a little bit at at that point in time, but has become certainly kind of a, a chic, area um so i don't think it would be necessarily as dirty as it is as a matter of fact again going back to that 102 um prince the bottom whole portion of that building now is a giant Toomey store so i mean <laughs> you know it uh it's probably changed a little bit you know um since the 90s but uh i think probably even with this movie they're probably dressing things up a little worse than than maybe they are necessarily in the real world yeah no i i, I agree um so this is something that I, I thought about when, when it happened. So they're walking down this alley and Molly says to Sam that she wants to get married. It it kind of feels abrupt. Like, I know you're supposed to feel like, okay, they've had a relationship long before this movie. You know, they, they've gotten this apartment together, yada, yada, yada. But like the way she kind of comes out so nonchalantly about wanting to get married It felt very abrupt in that moment, but also it's a significant turning point in the movie because what happens is, as she says that, her you know her vision of what her life was going to be completely unravels in that same moment. You know, no, it's it's true, and I I actually I thought that was an awkward beat in the movie, Um, kind of for for two reasons. One, I don't think I didn't realize that they were married already. I don't know if they kind of made any allusion to the fact that they were just, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend or whatever. I, I know that oddly, Whoopi keeps referring to him as her friend for the rest of the movie, not like your boyfriend or lover or whatever. You know, I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. Um, but then the other one that was kind of awkward for me is that, you know, it's it. they treat it in the way that she says it almost like, she's giving in on something he's been asking for previously, like as if he had asked her previously if if they would get married. And now she's finally coming around to it. But in the same kind of sentence and conversation, she's sort of indicating that he's the one that's had trouble committing to her because he won't ever say I love you. And that he says ditto. And obviously ditto becomes a big linchpin in, in the rest of the movie here. Um, but, you know, he's he kind of goes on this sort of thing of like, you know, everybody says they love each other and it doesn't mean anything, you know, and she's talking about like, well, I need to hear it. But then the weird part was like, she was the one like, why don't we get married? So I don't know. It it felt like neither one of them was quite (laughs) like a hundred percent on one side of that argument or the other. Right. Cause yeah, you're right. Because she comes off as, as, as implying as if he's asked her to marry him in the past and she said she wasn't ready, but yet, she can say I love you, but he can't. It was like there's something there that is missing in the in the story in the edit yeah. that we didn't see that should have been established earlier that would have explained that a little bit. Did you have a different read on that, Ange? No, I actually agree with you. I thought it was very abrupt, and I don't know that it would have made a difference to the story. You know, if they had just already been married, maybe they were newlyweds getting their you know new apartment or newly engaged. Um, so I actually, I don't know that it did anything for me or heightened 
you know, the experience that they weren't married and that they had this difficulty. I almost wonder if it would have been different. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike hits the nail on the head in that, like, obviously we know things are about to completely change like in seconds. And, you know, there's, there's two versions to that. One is where she's kind of saying like, I love you so much. Let's get married, which is like a very happy version of it. But they're also kind of having like, not a fight, but like a disagreement about how he reacts to her and how he says, I love you or doesn't say I love you and things like that. And again, they need to establish that ditto because it plays a big role going through the rest of the movie. But yeah, I don't know. It was, it was weird. It was just an interesting kind of way that they handled that, that moment leading up to obviously what then comes afterwards. So what would have been smart again, I'm a big advocate of show me, don't tell me. And instead of having her say that she wants to get married, she should maybe after he's dead, be going through his things and find an engagement ring. Something like that. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. that could be. That's just sort of payoff. Right, exactly. Um, so I what, just... You mean instead of like his thing of Rolaids? Right, yeah. <laughs> like the, the, the Rolaids again doesn't, doesn't just... Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. But I'm just like, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to this story. Like, who gives a shit about Rolaids? You know, like I don't know. Um, but uh, so Sam Wheat, I don't know. For you guys, <laughs> like I feel like they could have come out with a better last name for him. He just made me think of like like Wheaties or Fruit of the Loom <laughs> or like uh, what was I thinking? So, something like a, like cream of wheat every time i heard his last name i was like that doesn't work it's not a good <laughs> last name i get it it's a short two syllable name fine maybe it's three syllables whatever you want to say but like well, i mean first of all you got to back up and realize that his middle name is whole <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have whole wheat back then man whole wheat didn't exist it was white bread or rolls. That was it. That's all we had. Maybe a rye, but no, no whole wheat. <laughs> but I don't know. I just didn't like his last name. I would have come up with a better last name for him. Yeah. I, I mean, again, it felt lazy. I don't know where I, f- yeah, I don't know where I fall on it. Um, one way or the other, uh, in one respect, I'm for me, because I'm somebody that's God awful with people's names in real life and in movies. It's a real easy name for me to remember. <laughs> I, I think the other thing is that maybe they're just going for that wholesome feel, you know, like what feels wholesome. You know, it's kind of like an elf, <laughs> the scene where they're trying to talk about like what's like a, you know, I'm probably going to get the, the terminology wrong, but they're like, what's like a wholesome fruit or something like a, <laughs> they have to get like Peter Dinklage in to like, you know, discuss it with them. Um, but I, I think it's that sort of thing. Like what feels like like a wholesome name? wheat oh it's like of the earth you know like i mean that's that's the only thing i can really say about that um you know i mean none of these names are like spectacularly interesting names or whatever but oda uh, may's yeah. pretty interesting oda may's a good good yeah good oda may's a good one although you know actually what i really liked is that they kind of say that she was from like louisiana and that that for some reason feels like a good louisiana yeah. name to me so i don't know maybe that's where she picked that one up <laughs> so i don't know this is another part that bothered me about this whole scene is we see earlier in this movie that Patrick Swayze, though he's not Superman, he's strong. He's like, he's masculine. He's using the sledgehammer, doing the construction. He 
karate kicks the angel yeah. by doing this like you know flying roadhouse you know, roadhouse <laughs> move out the window but yet he's nearly beaten physically by this essentially homeless guy and then uh, until the gun comes out whatever but like how could he have not overpowered this guy? He could have karate kicked that gun out of his hand in one second. And I'm like, I, I don't get it. He just he just did this flying thing where he jumps up, grabs a two by four and swings out of an eight foot window. No problem. But he couldn't kick this gu- gun out of this guy's hand. I don't know. Yeah, I had a second problem with this in my mind, which was that she did nothing to help him. <laughs> like, like this guy's pulled a gun on both of you. He's like wrestling with him and she's just standing several feet back from him just going, stop it, Sam. Stop it, Sam. And I'm like, why does Sam need to stop it? Like, like I would jump on that dude's back, which again, like later on in the movie, she jumps on his back. So like or on Carl's back. I'm like, get in there. Come on, throw some punches or something. <laughs> I, I think they did that on purpose because it shows a character change later on in the film as opposed to being this scared little girl to... Oh, look at you, Mr. Screenwriter. Yeah, no, that's I, that's a fair That's I, a fair. I'm compliment. just, I'm looking at it like, you know, <laughs> she's got her character arc, yada, 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 and all that jazz. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what I'm going to go with that. So yeah, but man, what a botched mugging that was! <laughs> As we come to find out, he was not supposed to die. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, one of the cool things I thought about this movie was when the mugger, when Willie Lopez runs away, we see Sam chasing after him, only to realize it's Sam's ghost that's chasing after him, and his body is back where he was shot. And I loved that. I thought that was so interesting. Like your soul doesn't realize you're dying or dead until after the fact. And you're still going on with what your brain would have wanted you to do kind of thing. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I had some questions about how the ghost works in this movie, because at several different points, you see several different people, main characters otherwise die. And how their ghost then like essentially escapes or comes away from their body. And like, I thought that Sam's actually was one of the weirdest ones because he gets shot. And then next thing he sort of is just like, I forget if he stands up or, or like it does like a fade or whatever, but he's like, just like standing, like, I don't know, like a good, like 10, 20 feet away from himself and her. And he kind of comes running back like, Oh, Hey Molly, like what's going on? But like that one was a little weird because it seemed to me like everybody else essentially kind of came directly out of themselves. So it's almost as if either the gunshot had propelled his spirit or whatever away from him. I don't know. It was, it was a little weirder how that one was handled. It was also um, in my mind versus some of the others. It was, it was, there's a couple of confusing things about that is I, I think yes, that the, the gunshot propelled his soul out of his body. Um, the other thing is as the angels start co- or whatever the, the light, let's say starts coming through, how is he able to walk away from it where nobody else seems to be able to walk away from it? Yeah. I mean, the one other scene I think is, is later on in the hospital where somebody is dying and you see them like on the gurney and the doctors are trying to do CPR and like they see the light and they just immediately go towards it. I think it's just that whole shtick, you know, like, do you go towards the light or do you walk away? Do you have unfinished business? And I guess 
he felt like he had unfinished business. So he yeah. got uh, some time. And it, it seems like other people are, because obviously we run into several other ghosts throughout the rest of the movie that are just kind of like hanging out, you know? Yeah. So it seems like a lot of people have, uh, have uh, decided to opt for essentially the uh, purgatory wander around earth sort of option. So I don't know if you guys noticed this, the first scene where we kind of see Sam, the ghost standing over his dying body and his uh, Demi's body or Demi body Demi or (laughs) Molly or whatever she's called in the movie like I don't know if it was intentional but he looks kind of flat like I don't know however they did the green screen or whatever but it just felt like a bad edit because the way it's cut he has no three-dimensional element to him it's just kind of like layered on top of whatever's behind him and it was a little bit distracting for a moment in the, in that shot. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought this up. And again, we'll probably step back into this a few other times through the rest of this conversation. But uh, you know me, I'm always somebody that's keen on how they're doing the effects and these sort of things. And so I, you know, I think that this movie overall did a pretty darn good job with it. I think that they, it still even holds up today for the most part. That said, like you're saying, there's this, there's a few other times where, again, at this point in time, they would have been using blue screen. Um, and actually, most of the effects where there's some kind of, he's moving through a wall, he's moving through a person, he's having a double on screen, something like that, um, would have been done with optical printing at that point in time, for the most part. Again, which is like the same technology they're using to do like spaceships and Star Wars and things like that don't want to get into the process of how that all works, but suffice it to say it's an analog system using film and projectors versus a digital or video sort of system that comes along um, later on here. But there's definitely some hinky times where the mats are a little funny. Um, there's a few times where, especially like in his hair, cause he's got that like nineties feathered hair that you'll see the blue seeping through and things like that, you know? Um, but as for as many ones that were okay or bad, there's as many that were good or awesome. So I'm willing to forgive and forget some of them. And I think they happen so quickly a lot of the time that if you're not totally looking for it, you can miss it. But I think probably what you're hitting on is because they're filming him separately on a blue screen. I think their lighting is off um, from the rest of the scene because it's obviously a very dark, dramatic scene. I think their lighting's off and that's why it's looking flat or funky or not, you know, kind of mismatched. Agreed. All right. So I thought uh, one funny thing for me with that scene is that like when he sees himself and recognizes he's dead, did it, did it seem like this to you? It looked to me like he was about to go cross-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do a lot of facial acting in this movie. Some is really good. Some is really bad. And that one was one of those moments where it's just like, that's not good face acting there, <laughs> Mr. Swayze. I'm sorry. yeah i mean i don't know like i haven't seen a ton of patrick swayze movies or if i have it's been a long time so i can't really say if he's a good actor bad actor altogether but he definitely plays this role in a very cornballish way at times um and there's definitely some odd choices (laughs) at at points and i think you have some some others that you'll bring up later too but yeah it it uh he has some very funny moments that like again like what reaction would any of you have or any of us have when you see yourself dead from an out of body experience, but his face just like, Oh my God, <laughs> just, his eyes just like went really buggy there. And it really, it made me laugh in that moment rather than be like, Oh no, Sam, you know? So yeah, 
Uh, and then obviously speaking of other weird things, the next moment, and I know this was something on, on your list too, was he wakes up in bed next to that creepy angel face. <laughs> oh my God. That, that went from me being like, what a goofy face to be like, ah, Ooh, kill it with fire. <laughs> and then he has like this like weird dream sequence. And he, he obviously, as you, you know, we were mentioned, he kind of walks away from the heavenly light and things like that decides to stay. But another kind of interesting thought I had, and maybe this is why it's like a weird dream sequence, weird sequence he's having is I get the impression he wasn't entirely dead uh, because they rush him to the hospital. You know what I mean? And like, if he was like dead on the scene, like DOA, I, I think it, you know, like the, they wouldn't have been like flooring it there. Like in the, in the thing, I think it's almost, they were trying to get him to the hospital to save him. He might've been dying still. So maybe he was having like this, like half, half in body out of body experience. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that weird dream sequence thing that happened there? Well, he's he's definitely not fully dead in the in the street. He definitely dies in the hospital. But the confusing part about that is like, is he reliving memories? Is he having it? It's so quick because like you see the angel in the bed. Then a moment later, you see Molly in the bed. Then he's standing over the bed. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> I was so confused because it it almost took me out of the scene because I'm like, I don't get it. Like what would have been better is instead of having that weird angel bedroom sequence, just have a montage flashes of him and Molly together, like in their apartment, doing the pottery, you know, hanging up picture frames, petting that creepy cat, you know, (laughs) knocking down walls like a quick little montage of that, him like reliving his best life memories that we have seen in, in this film would be better than this weird out of body experience, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I think it just goes back to even what you were saying earlier. It's just some of this metaphorical thing. And again, I think they're playing up that angel because again, it's, you know, it's a sculpture of Molly's. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's hard to tell if this is stuff that's going through his head as he's dying or, if heaven is trying to send him a message that he needs to protect her or I don't know, very, very weird scene. (laughs) So here's a a thing that I noticed that I was kind of confused about, but I also was interested in. So they're at the hospital and he meets this old man who's waiting for his wife. And then they're talking, they're having kind of a brief conversation where the old man sort of explains to him what's going on with him, why he's, why this is happening to him. And then in an instant, he's gone. I guess you're to assume that his wife has died. And so he's gone to meet up with her and go to heaven or, or the great beyond or whatever they want to call it. But I would have liked to have him almost be like a mentor in a way to, to, to guide Sam a little bit better than just that one brief scene. What, are, what do you guys think about that? It's not City of Angels or whatever that Meg Ryan movie was. I kind of liked. <laughs> I kind of liked that there was the mystery behind it, and that it wasn't so cut and dry, right? Because there was a lot of questions, you know, around the guy he sees in the subway and this guy, and you know, why do why is the lady in the cemetery hanging around, and you know how long do you hang around before you got to go in the ground or up above or wherever it is? And I don't know. I kind of like the mystery behind it because he doesn't really question. I think that for me, that was, if I have a question, 
he doesn't seem to question Mm -hmm. what's happening. You know what I mean? Like he never is saying, why is this happening? What can I, and what can't I do? He just kind of rolls with it and his focus is just keeping Molly safe. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, I think they did a really good job with several of these scenes where he meets another ghost and they give him just enough exposition to get him to the next sort of step of whatever it is he's doing. Um, and I thought that one was a particularly sweet one, especially the idea that this one guy was like waiting around for his wife, kind of just a sweet plot beat, you know, and there's sort of this whole subtext to the movie where you see various times, various ghosts that have sort of different things going on with them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of world building. It's just kind of interesting. It just goes to show that there's, you know, especially in a busy place like New York, there's a lot of people that might have unfinished business or things like that going on. So yeah, I thought it was a fun way to kind of give him that next little bit of story and information. So he's like, not just gaining this knowledge out of the clear blue sky, but you know, in the same vein, kind of pushing the story forward in a, in a little bit of a fun and different way. Hey, Retro Network listeners, Jason here inviting you to watch Mickey and I on the Wax Pack Flashback every Friday on YouTube and Instagram. Each week we open a vintage pack of trading cards from various sports and non-sports sets. First, Mickey opens his pack on the Retro Network YouTube channel on Friday morning, and then my response video comes in the afternoon on Instagram TV. Previous Wax Pack flashbacks have included cards from movies like Rocky IV, E.T., and Independence Day, TV shows like Yo! MTV Raps, Toxic Crusaders, and American Gladiators. We've also featured unique card sets like Rad Dudes, Operation Desert Shield, and Mad Magazine and classic sports card sets like 92 Tops Baseball, classic WWF, and action-packed football. Subscribe now to our YouTube channel by going to youtube.com slash C slash The Retro Network and follow us on Instagram at TRN Social. Join us for some great nostalgia this Friday on the Wax Pack Flashback. So in that same scene, something that kind of bothered me later on in the film is he we we find out that he can't hold anything. He doesn't know how to hold or grab or, you know, do anything like that. But yet whenever there's a seat or a chair in the scene, he can sit without a problem. And I'm like, how is he able to hold his structure to sit on the seat? And not fall through it, but he can't open a doorknob. It doesn't make sense. I mean, if I had to explain this off at all, first of all, I would say, funny enough, again, just comparing this against something like The Sixth Sense, you know, when you get to the end of Sixth Sense and realize that Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time and you go Spoiler alert! Spoiler spoiler alert! Yeah, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sorry, anybody that just got uh, messed up on that one who's been just just putting that off and had it on their list. Whoops. But, uh, (laughs) you know... When you go back and watch it again, you realize that like anytime he interacts with something like a chair, he's not moving it at all. You know what I mean? Like he just kind of sits down and like, you know, it is what it is. Uh, So I guess the way I would explain it off. And again, this is something we'll get into later when we talk about um, the subway guy, subway ghost, is that, you know, in those instances, he's like really having to think about and channel it. And when he gets good at it, he kind of doesn't have to think about it anymore. I think if I had to explain how he would sit in a seat is like, it's almost like he just doesn't even think about it. Like he's just like, Oh, 
It's a seat. You sit in it. And like, he just sits in it. And that's that. I mean, like you could make that same argument about like, if, if he's incorporeal and slips through everything, why doesn't he just like fall through the earth or something? You know? So, I mean, I think there's always these rules that happen in these kind of uh, movies where somebody can move through things and things like that. Like, it's the kitty pride argument. Like, you know, does she fall to the center of the planet earth or, you know, into the molten core because she has no um, kind of uh, ability to touch things or whatever when she's in her phasing sort of thing. So I don't know. I, I think you always have to give that, that little bit of suspension of disbelief and just be like, yeah, you know, he's not moving the chair. He's just kind of sitting in it. So like he's interacting with it in so much as that, like he's just bending over and sitting on it or whatever. I don't know. It is a good point, but it's, I guess, one of those things you just have to kind of let it go, slip and slide. Yeah. (laughs) And and for those of you who don't know who Kitty Pride is, because you may not read comics or know much about the X-Men, Kitty Pride is an X-Men character in the Marvel Cinematic, well, not Cinematic Universe, but Marvel Universe. uh, That is her ability, if you will, is that she's more or less transparent or translucent, and she can't always hold her structure like she can phase through walls and phase through objects there's actually been times where she's been trapped inside of a bullet that sent her into outer space because she couldn't phase out of it and uh yeah that's her whole shtick yeah i mean probably somebody like adam or somebody could help fill this gap in better but uh i i feel like i remember some plot line with her that somebody was questioning that like if she just like did that that she would simply like because of gravity she would like go through the floor and the ground and like into the core of the earth and would be stuck there or something like that. I forget. So that's where I'm coming up with that. from. <laughs> Touche. So, uh, yeah. So I thought there was some really cool effects for going to heaven. Um, and specifically, uh, and there's a few other ones as well, but like uh, pointing again, when I was talking about that ghost that dies on the gurney and he kind of travels up to heaven uh, again, I thought that was like a really neat, little effect that they did there. And I'm not sure exactly how they're doing it. It's actually, I had a very hard time trying to find, um, it's hard to find a lot of info on ghost because when you type in ghost, you end up with Ghostbusters. Did you mean ghost in the shell? Did you mean, you know, like this, that and 10 other ghost movies besides ghost. So I realized after a point, you have to also type in 1990, but it was actually kind of hard finding, um, a lot of info on how they did some of the effects in this, but uh, you know, I, I couldn't quite tell if it was a painting that they were doing or just something funny that they were filming. But yeah, I thought it was interesting when the person does die and sweeps up to heaven. I thought that was a really pretty effect. Um, and then likewise, they have several more that kind of happen um, through the rest of the movie. But he um, kind of goes through that nurse. The nurse is sort of walking towards him down the hall, pushing a cart and he goes through him, and it's the first time that happens to him. And like he travels like through the nurse's like head i guess and so you kind of see it from his first person perspective and like it was a little funny because obviously you're supposed to be thinking like oh what would it be like walking through a brain or something but you kind of just instead see like a lot of like blood cells or molecules things like that going by but it was interesting because like you know you don't always think about like having to show something like that like when somebody's passing through that you would be seeing it from this kind of cutaway sort of thing and again they do that several other times at other points, but I thought that was a neat, uh, neat effect. So the next thing that I, I, there's a jump from the hospital back to their apartment. We don't establish how he got back to the apartment. Did he follow her? Does he walk there? Like he's just boom, he's in there and yet he can't leave because he can't open the door. So how did he get in in the first place? That's, that's <laughs> a question. Uh, that's another little plot hole we found. <laughs> yeah. But, um, while he's there, 
that horrifying alien cat like <laughs> is staring at him and he like gets in its face and then the cat freaks out and runs away because apparently the cat can see him. Yeah, I thought that was actually pretty cool. You know, I mean, throughout a lot of different mediums over time, there's always this idea that cats can commune otherworldly and, you know, they hear or see things that aren't there and whatever. That's why uh, you, you can even find them. that. Yeah, <laughs> you, can, you can even sort of find that thing on YouTube, you know, with people like filming their cat, like just having these weird reactions to absolutely nothing. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a fun idea to let the cat sort of be as Whoopi turns out to be sort of has the gift as it were and essentially can hear him if not see him, you know, something like that. Yeah, I, I think the cat can actually see him, which is really even scarier, but um, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So in that same scene, he's kind of like following Molly around the apartment. And then at one point she walks through him and he does this like convulsing gyration of his body as an actor. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that is some of the worst piece of acting I've ever seen. Cause he's like, and I'm doing it here in my house. Cause you guys can clearly see what I'm doing, but it's kind of funny. Cause he just kind of like shakes his whole body. And like, okay. It's weird. I think the only thing I would say to that is they have like a minor line a little later in the movie when there's another ghost that tries to like essentially possess Whoopi. And it sort of they sort of say like, oh, you should know better that like if you go into somebody like that, it drains you. So maybe they're alluding to something like that. But yeah, again, still choices. And again, he went real hammy at a lot of things in this movie. So maybe that's that. (laughs) I I think it's actually more that he saw her insides and was grossed out by it. (laughs) That could be too. Yeah, (laughs) it's got to be a trippy. Yeah. So uh, another one, I mean, again, I love his reactions when somebody passes through him. And again, like it's that it's with her. I think there's a few other times. It's it's very over the top. <laughs> it's very silly and it's 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 a lot of fun. So next thing that comes along is there. Um, actually, again, we were talking like, why is Carl around so much? <laughs> but Carl's helping her to um, kind of pack up or, or store or get rid of some of his old things. And, uh, you know, they're kind of making choices and he's kind of like, why? Why this? We hated that. Why? And he's like, obviously not seeing that she's hanging on to any little thing of his just because she's so hurting at the moment, which I thought was like, come on, guy. Like, it's kind of obvious. But one of the funny ones for me was that there was a little uh, Rolaids product placement. I think I mentioned before, (laughs) which is he has like this like little bit of like a Rolaids pack left with maybe like three of them in there. And he's like, come on, get rid of that. Like, why do you need that? Uh, so I thought that was kind of a, a funny little nineties thing. I think Rolaids were a little bit more prevalent at that point in time. Uh, and how then, do you spell uh, relief? That's what it's- <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which is obviously not the same as Mentos, the fresh maker. Right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, also that Reebok box came into play there. Then we, uh, we see that, um, and it, it's so funny. It was instantly rang nineties bells in my head to Big see time. that box and the pattern across the top of it and things like that. I think that was, so many of those boxes look just like that at that time. And I realized that then if you're paying attention, that Carl's actually already trying to get his little uh, 
slip of paper that has his key codes by sort of walking out the door um, with that box, which again, I didn't realize until kind of retroactively later in the movie. Um, And then the next bit is that he's trying to convince her to take a walk with him. And he kind of says something a little like off color about you're not the one who died or whatever, but man, I was impressed. Carl took that slap like a champ. She slaps him in the face and he doesn't even take his hands off his hips. He doesn't even flinch. I thought that was, uh, that was something. (laughs) That was a, that was a pretty good shot, but it also, it starts to show her character growing a little bit more of a, of a backbone than she had earlier in the film. It's, it's almost too much. Like, she almost should have like shoved him or something like that. Cause like the slap is a very, like it's a very hard slap. Like she hit him with some gusto and I was like, Whoa, okay. All right. She gave him a good shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could see it in that moment. It's just one of those reactions to like, he said kind of a, a not nice thing. And so like he got the payback for it, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, you think about these things in terms of movie making or, or real life. And, you know, she belts him one, but he, just, he didn't even have his hands come up to try and protect himself or nothing. He just kept them planted on his hips like, <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe he's a glutton for punishment. I don't know. We'll, we'll get back to him, I guess. I think he is. So uh, the next kind of thing is interesting is that, um, again, we kind of were talking about how he um, Sam has these different effects of moving through things. And he finally decides that he can start trying to like move through the door. I thought one of the really interesting effects that they had happened to him here. And I feel like they didn't actually do this again, which is kind of a shame in my mind is that he started taking on the properties of the door. You know, like he sort of starts walking through the door and he kind of starts seeing like the material inside it, but he also starts turning the color of the door. Like, he, like this purple starts bleeding onto him. Yes, that was cool. That, it was almost like a grayish, almost like a cement gray, purpley kind of color. His skin, yeah. his skin was changing it or whatever. It was it was very cool. So that was an interesting thing for me then, because like, you know, I feel like they don't show that necessarily happening then when he interacts with other things going forward. And maybe that's just because he moves through them quicker with more confidence. But I don't know. That was kind of interesting. I was like, you know, if he stands too much time, phasing with an object like that does he start to become part of it i don't know that was just weird how it was like that color was just kind of taking to him so i don't know if they did that to cover up the effect a little bit or just something fun to do but i thought that was kind of a neat uh neat idea how to handle that um so obviously the next thing then is uh good old willie shows up and starts trying to get in the door um which again i thought this was kind of funny and maybe another plot hole when you think about it that, you know, a couple moments before Carl's trying to go out the door and take that Reebok box with him. But then Willie's showing up just moments later after they've left and is going to come in and try and find that box to steal it. Moments. So like, it's not like it's yeah, been hours you know, like, and, you know, he's got a cell phone and he can text them because that doesn't exist. Yeah, there that, wasn't yeah. like a drop like, you know, and maybe there was like some scene where, you know, off screen where he's like, if you see me come out of the building with her, you go in next or something like that. I don't know. It just seemed like a funny thing, but he's uh, he's following him around and he's trying to take swings at him. But I thought one of the coolest effects of the whole movie, because there's a lot of like different, you know, sort of things going on. But just as far as like the technical challenge of doing it is there's a shot where they enter the the scene and Willie's essentially trying to make his way up the stairs to go look for presumably the box. And Patrick Swayze's sort of trying to attack him and grab him and, and things like that the whole time. Um, but 
that would have been pretty tricky to do. You know, these days, if you're doing that sort of thing, you have cameras on motorized gimbals that can repeat a shot exactly over and over and over. I was trying to figure out how they were doing that. Because again, thinking that they're probably doing this on a blue screen, um, I was really stumped as to how they might have been trying to get him and the timing of that and everything of with swinging at him and chasing him up the stairs quite as perfect as it as it did. And again, it, it looks a little wonky if you really slow it down and look at it frame by frame, which I was trying to do <laughs> to try and figure out the uh, the inner workings of how they were doing that. But that was an impressive shot, I, I felt like, for that time. It almost looked as if they, they layered the film. Like, Willie did his thing. They had to block it out perfectly. And then, you know, Sam does his, you know, try to hit him kind of thing. And they just layered them on top of each other. And they kind of, like, pulled out. I mean, I don't know how they would have done it back in the 90s because you can't... D- you weren't able to digitally pull out the background back then that I could think of, but no, I don't know. Yeah. It would have been done with hand matting um, and things like that. Uh, and it, it would have been possible, but I, I think like, as you say, I think that's kind of how I'm leaning towards this. But if that's the case, I really have to give them credit for getting their timing down on that shot. Because again, there's a lot of shots like this in that movie, um, including the mirror one we talked about earlier, where they're going for a technical challenge. That's maybe, bigger than what this movie calls for but they go for it and i think they get some great results so i I do have to give them credit for for making that uh attempt and i think it held up pretty well the the other thing we forgot to mention is when willie shows up at the apartment as we said it's like moments after molly leaves how did he get in without her seeing him we only know that there's one way in and out of the building we don't know if there's an elevator and stairs we don't know any of that like they could have walked by the hallway. She'd be like, you just murdered my boyfriend three days ago. Like <laughs> what? You know, yeah, it's that's so, true. It's so well, whatever weird. happened beyond the door while he was trying to get through it. Maybe yeah. he was hiding in a stairwell or something. Who knows? Who knows? Good point though. So now here's the interesting thing. We, we, we are back to this cat again. <laughs> and when, when, first of all, I think you need to get this cat tattooed on you somewhere <laughs> after this. <laughs> I hope not. Yikes. <laughs> so Molly comes home from what feels like a five minute walk, you know, it's yeah. not very long. And and so she's going to get killed or attacked by Willie. And and Sam's trying to figure out a way to warn her. And then the cat just seems to strategically be perfectly placed on, on like some sort of <laughs> perch in their apartment. And and. Sam decides to use the cat as a weapon and scare the cat so that it jumps out at Willie, claws him. He screams and then runs out of the apartment and slams the door behind him. And Molly goes, is somebody there? (laughs) Somebody there? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I do like the idea of weaponizing the cat and actually... I think him screaming in that cat's face is one of the highlights of the movie for me. I actually, I, I'm going to make a point to try and pull a freeze frame of that and throw it into our uh, socials when we go posting here this over the next month. But I loved him screaming in that cat's face. I thought one funny thing about that, though, and again, this is just, I guess, anytime you're working with animals or whatever, is that the cat very clearly jumps on his shoulder, but he's got like this big bloody claw mark and i mean really bloody claw mark on his face like you know if you've ever been scratched by a cat yeah it hurts like a mother but (laughs) it does not leave 
such a huge bloody gash on your no. face. So and I thought that was funny. And how does Molly not see like bloody paw pins all through the, the apartment and like, <laughs> hmm, gee, why is my cat's foot covered in blood and it's all Wet over wipes. the place? The cat wiped itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah again. Did that stash of wipes again. Yeah. Again, I don't know. I'm a little <laughs> suspect. So you know, one thing to say about that, though, is I feel like you and Willie are on the level with that cat, man. That cat jumped on him, and instead of being that diehard mugger, murderer, potential rapist, whatever he is that, that he's doing there, that cat jumped on him, and he's just like, I am out of here. <laughs> yes. He he wasted no time to get away from this killer cat, and I, I, I strongly can connect with Willie on that note. <laughs> so, so far, I think it's me and Patrick, four cats, you two and <laughs> Willie against cats. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So, so now, then we later on find Sam going to the subway. Why he's going there? Oh, no, isn't he following Willie? He's following Willie home, right? Yeah. So he's following him home. He's on the subway. He meets another ghost who's apparently like living on this subway. And that guy is probably the scariest guy in the whole movie. (laughs) And, you know, he... I love him so much. He's terrifying. (laughs) But he hangs Sam out of the, the train in a couple different places. Again, Sam doesn't start absorbing the, the, the metal of the train, but that's whatever. I don't care. But now the weird part about this whole scene is this ghost smashes a glass window on a subway car. And no one in the train car reacts to the glass that is spontaneously <laughs> combusted all of a sudden. Well, we, they had to get in there. Uh, those were their B extras for the day. <laughs> they it's were not just, getting paid so well or something. <laughs> that's just normal New York behavior for the time. <laughs> yeah, actually, that might even be new, normal New York behavior now. For now, you, yeah. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you just turn your head and be like, oh, there's oh, another one. <laughs> uh, there it is. All right. It is what it is. Actually, speaking of that, man, I, I was talking about that train ride I took earlier. They got to trim some of the branches on the LIRR because this one branch smacked the window next to me. And oh, my God, my heart leapt into my chest. I uh, that it's just like, bam, and it scared the heck out of me. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe the appropriate reaction is to be very scared after a glass window just explodes out at you. Because just the, the branch hitting the one the other day nearly had my heart in my throat. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that dude does not want him on his train. No. <laughs> I uh, I love that nuttiness that uh, Vincent Schiavelli brings to that character. Um, again, like you, I remember from like the my remembrance portion, but uh, that was a, a character that that stuck with me. And again, like I know he just becomes another little exposition character for him, but like, damn, he like bull rushed him and wanted him off that train. Um, and it, it kind of brings me to my next uh, question for again for both of you is how do the other ghosts no other ghosts you know it seems like the sam or at least from the audience perspective don't seem to be able to spot a difference between a ghost and just like an ever you know like an everyday person so is it if the ghosts have been around longer they can spot their own kind i mean like what's going on with that i think that's the case is that once someone has been dead for a while like the old man in the hospital like the guy in the train the lady in the cemetery they can see 
people that are dead. They really, they know how to tell the difference. Maybe there's some sort of aura that they just didn't have the money and the budget to add on every single frame of Patrick Swayze to, sh- to showcase that. That's all I yeah. can think of. Yeah. Interesting. Experience. Like anything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So after he leaves Willie's apartment, he goes to this spiritual advisor, which is conveniently immediately across the street from Willie. And it just conveniently happens to be run by the only person on earth <laughs> that can hear him. It was so convenient <laughs> that it it took me out of it for a moment. But then Whoopi starts doing her thing. And I was like, okay, I, I don't care. It's Whoopi. It's good. I'm go. I'm, I'm on. Yeah, I think, again, this is probably just one of these things where they need it to happen at some point. And again, actually, another interesting thing, because obviously Oda May becomes a big, big, big character in this movie. But we're like 45 minutes or so into the movie at this point. So it's taken them a minute to like introduce you to this character. So I don't know, you know, like I kind of wish that they had done something where he saw an aura or heard something or something that drew him there other than just them like, well, I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll go into this place or something Mm -hmm. like that. But no, you are you are very right. It is conveniently right there. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. But uh, I guess that's maybe some of the uh, the luck that they were talking about earlier in the movie. Yeah. Um, my takeaway was was Oda May is doing really good business. She had a huge <laughs> line waiting in that uh, opening area. And she's got two employees, which I think are her sisters. They There's kind of sister. call her sisters, but like, you know, and they're all living together. But I don't know, like it, they're sort of like. Those two characters are weirdly throwaway characters because they kind of come in for a little bit and you see them here and then again. And they have no names. Exactly. They're like no name sisters. And like, I can't tell if it's part of her act that they're her sisters or something. I don't know. Whatever. So we'll we'll say that they're her her sisters. The the weird thing about that is there's there's a part when they're in their apartment or their house or whatever it is where she says, my mother had the gift. My grandmother had the gift. I've just been faking it all this time. Now I have the gift. If if she's referencing her own mother and her own grandmother, wouldn't she have said our mother, our grandmother? But she says yeah, mine. I mean, as far as the syntax of that goes, I think it's because she's talking to Patrick Swayze. But with that same sort of thing in mind, like, wouldn't they then maybe also have the gift? I don't know. It, it it feels like it could go either way if they're actually her sisters or not actually her sisters. So I know we're getting into some, like, deep state conspiracy stuff here now. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I guess we'll just call them her sisters. But they really felt like throwaway characters compared to her. So I don't know. I, I felt like they could have had those characters or not had those characters and it wouldn't really made that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what was fun for me though, is, um, how, um, Oda, they, they bring this lady in and they open a closet and just show her like an empty closet and then they close it and they're like, Oh, she shall join us shortly. And the next thing, like she comes out of the closet. That's some serious showmanship there. <laughs> like, I love the idea that she's doing that to like, kind of like sell her otherworldly persona, but like, she's just like storing 
junk up on the shelf. And it's just like, ugh, get some uh, beads or something like that and make the thing look a little bit more interesting inside that. <laughs> yeah, there's, that, a, co- there's uh, a coat hanger. It's just like, yeah, like all it needed was like a mop or something in there and it would have completed the image. So this is pretty funny. And this is, again, going back to the the face acting in this movie. When, when Whoopi is doing her fake like seance with this woman, and she starts hearing Sam's voice. Her <laughs> face. She does this thing with like her eyes and like her eyebrows. Like she's kind of like, <laughs> what the hell is that? And it's the funniest face. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Like that's like legit surprise, confused face. It was perfect. Yeah, no, her <laughs> face was priceless. And like, I love her like looking at her sisters and like, they're just like giving her a look back like what (laughs) you know like she's looking at them at first as if like somehow they're doing a wacky voice or something i thought that was very funny Uh, yeah no her her face is amazing but i love when they're like what's going on what's going on she's saying say my name name." sam wait and she just freaks out (laughs) and it's it's fabulous it's so good um and i think it's also you know it's funny you guys brought up the name earlier it is such as like a simple name and it's, and, and I think it's like a name that she probably would not, you know, associate or think of or something like it's a very plain name. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just so funny. Yeah. Well, even the says. sisters that are like Sam, Sam, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the other great part of that too, is that you actually, I had to go back and, and check it again. Cause I was confused about it, but she actually, you see her in her little hidden room in her closet, the blue room. She like, he comes in there and he, she like opens that, but then she like straight up, knocks the whole damn door down <laughs> coming out of that closet. I was just like, that was great. <laughs> so good. So here's another thing for me though, then, right? Because again, we were just mentioning her mom had the gift, whatever. So how is it that she can hear ghosts, but in this line of work where she literally has set herself up to like hear ghosts, she's never heard one before. Now, doesn't that seem like a stretch? Yes. A little. Yes, a lot. Yes. I mean, especially too. And I, you know, I was going to mention it later, but like, you know, there's another scene later on where she's back at work and the whole place is full of ghosts and they've come as far away as Jersey and everything, you know, and it's like, A, how did they get the word about that? And then like B, like, it seems like this should have been the case all along that like there would have just been all these random ghosts, like doing essentially what Sam Wheat did. Like, oh, let me wander into this psychic and see if she could somehow help me to commune with my loved ones. I don't know. That that seemed like a stretch to me that like she's only just yeah, she ju- figuring it out now. She, she just now got the Haley Joel Osment powers. But <laughs> exactly. It, yeah. Or if we're doing the X-Men thing, you know, I mean, she should have had this power at puberty or something yeah. like that. So like <laughs> I, I think that that line about my grandma had it, my mom had it should have been cut out of the film because it takes away the magic of of their connection. If if apparently this type of thing existed in their world beforehand and it would have just been, it should have been removed. I feel like it should have just been somehow she's connected with this guy and it, it can't be explained. And I'd be better with that than them saying, Oh, grandma had it. Mom had it. I've always faked it, but now I've got it. It, it seemed like that's- it's true. Yeah. Cause it sets an expectation that this wouldn't be that strange to her. If she believed that her mother and grandmother could do this as well. So it seems odd that she would then freak out quite as bad as she did. Yeah. 
So they're sitting in her apartment or house or whatever, and she's having a conversation with them. And she goes, are you white? And he keeps talking. She goes, you're white. It's the way she delivers that line made me laugh out loud because she was in a lot of this movie. I felt like she was playing the character as if she thought if Eddie Murphy were to play this character, this is how Eddie Murphy would sound doing an impression of me doing an impression of him. And it was like this really like meta kind of a thing. It was really funny. That's funny. <laughs> nothing. No, 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 not, nothing. Just that's funny. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, whoopie's whoopie. You know? oh, yeah, on. yeah. She, she kind of has that like boisterous, you know, I, I think you can relate it over to Eddie Murphy because he's kind of that same way, but I think that's kind of just her. Anyway, it's her being her, yeah. yeah. But it was just like the way she said that line, I was like, it sounded like Eddie Murphy would be saying that through her voice. Almost, it was just pretty funny. I don't know, it made me laugh. <laughs> and then the other thing in that scene, or like a little bit later, is she's in her bed and he's singing Henry the Eighth. She's got these like onesie pajamas <laughs> on. Onesie. Oh my god! It, it this giant purple onesie, and it made me laugh out loud. I was like, "This is the craziest outfit I've ever seen." It's very, very funny. It made me laugh. I just wanted to point that out. And again, no, totally. And again, he's sitting in the chair, yet he doesn't know how to do that. So okay, whatever. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, and that Henry VIII song was so great. I love that. <laughs> so later on, we find Carl goes to Willie's apartment and Sam follows him there and learns that Carl has hired this guy to, you know, essentially not kill Sam, but mug him. And now because of all the things that have happened, they they have to kill Molly and now they have to kill Oda May. And it's it's a weird moment because I mean, obviously we've seen this movie before, but I could imagine the initial time you see this film, you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And then you're like, it's the big reveal, and it's it's interesting. Yeah, no, I I mean that was uh it was funny. It's like one of those like what a twist sort of things, you know. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I felt like you could see that coming at this point. I mean, like they hadn't a hundred percent, you know, shown that it was uh, you know, he was really, really in on it, but like I think I don't know, I don't for me personally, I felt like I I saw it start to come, but you know, poor Sam had the wool pulled over his eyes, I guess. There weren't too many characters to choose from. That's, no, yeah. that's true. That's true. <laughs> but it was a process of elimination. <laughs> but it's also one of those things where, like, in the beginning of the movie, they establish that they're going to some big meeting. And then when you find out that Carl is, like, dealing with some, you know, money laundering scheme and he's he's answering to a higher boss, like, could that have been the guy that hired Willie? You know, who knows? Like, I don't know. But yeah, it definitely sounds like they were linked in with the mob and they kind of make a few little mentions of things that that kind of allude to that. Not the least of which, as he says later on in the movie, like oh, they're going to bury you with Jimmy Hoffa or something like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think they've definitely got some some stuff hanging over them. And I think that's why, you know, Carl kind of flounders between uh you know, trying to be the smooth operator when it comes to dealing with Molly and kind of being extremely sweaty 
<laughs> when he's dealing with any other sort of issues, um, which again, you know, I'll, it, it happens more and more and more throughout the movie as soon as things start falling apart for him. But, you know, it, again, we were talking about that we have the writer of Airplane here and there's that famous scene in Airplane where the sweat is pouring, pouring off his head in buckets. And I think they pulled a little of that over here for Carl because Carl gets very sweaty. Through the rest of the movie. Oh, my sweaty God. Dude. He's literally just dripping sweat the entire movie <laughs> after that. That's why he can't least, wear a shirt. Yeah. Touché. At least one moment, and speaking of where he's a real smooth operator, though, I I love where he takes that presumably very fresh hot coffee <laughs> yes. and just pours it all over himself so he can like take his shirt off again with her. I was like, God damn, man, that's a little heavy handed. You know, you're being a little too familiar for a consoling friend. Yeah. And she doesn't blanch at any of that. Like, she's not like, oh, my God, did you just scald yourself with coffee? <laughs> you know, but, she even says something like, I'll get you a new shirt and then just doesn't even bother. <laughs> but but like, yes, he, he pours a scalding hot cup of coffee on himself without even flinching. And then <laughs> then he's like clearly moving in to like make out with her. And she doesn't even flinch like she's she's like willing to do it even though she's been emotionally heartbroken this entire film so far it's until sam you know knocks over the picture frame that she comes yeah. out of it and i was like that i felt was a bad move by the director and the writer like she should never never have even let him get that close because yeah, of how the I mean, portrayal I think obviously is. she's like a little emotionally wrecked at the moment and he's preying on that. And it was just probably like a moment of weakness. But uh, again, speaking of actually that picture frame, I kind of love the sequence that that sets off where he realizes like, oh, my God, there was that guy that could, you know, knock over stuff in the subway. I need to go check him. That was a really cool sequence of him like dashing around the subway system trying to find that crazy guy. That was really cool. That was a great sequence of him jumping through train and train. That was amazing the way they put that together. Now, the thing that I want to point out is so this guy is teaching him how to, you know, use the force essentially of how to hit, hit objects or move objects with his mind. And that's really, really cool. And I love how they do that. They don't spend enough time doing it, I feel like. But then there's this like flip where the guy kind of snaps at Sam and then breaks the smoke, uh, the cigarette machine, and he forgets that he's even there or, or who, who Sam is. And then he kind of like calls into question how he got killed. Did, was he pushed? Did he commit suicide? And then the ghost freaks out and jumps in front of the train. And it's this weird kind of question that made me like, are they trying to make a reference of, you know, people with mental illness? Is this guy crazy? D did he go crazy for being a ghost for a long time? Like, do you have this unstable mental state if you've been in limbo for too long. It was very confusing. And I was like, I wanted to know more, even though it's totally would take us out of the movie entirely because it would go a different direction. But there should have been a, a B plot to explain what that happened to that guy and why it got that way. I would have loved to know that. No, it's true. He's one of the more interesting characters um, in the film. 
Um, and I, I almost wish that they had some sort of other sidecar to it to explain a little bit more about him, but I guess we'll never quite know what's going on with Subway Guy. <laughs> uh, on that note, though, I really did like that Charlie Brown kick that he, he does, and <laughs> like, that like diabolical laugh that he laughs at, at him with, and then uh, another little product placement with that uh, old-school Mountain Dew can that he's kicking at him, <laughs> I thought was uh, was also very funny. And then uh, kind of on top of that, and again, kind of circling back on the whole cats thing, <laughs> I, I thought it was very funny that uh, kind of once a ghost learns that they can like move an object through that like rage or whatever that he was kind of, you know, telling him to use that uh, they basically become cats, like where they're just like knocking over whatever they want. <laughs> and there is even he passes it on the way out a poster for the movie cats. So I don't know, maybe there's a real, real cat thing going on for it was the movie. The it was the musical then, my friend. It was the musical back then. Oh no, that's what I'm talking about. Is is the uh, the musical? I just more mean I think Ghost the movie has a has a thing for cats. No, but you said the movie poster for cats, and I was like, no. Oh. Wah, wah. Well, it is getting late. <laughs> so the next one was kind of funny to me. Was um, Willie kind of attacks and then runs away? Why didn't he finish the job? Why you know, like he comes to to Oda's house, is chasing them. He, they kind of find refuge you know he takes off like i don't know i thought that was kind of an interesting uh interesting thing it it's almost like the the scene in the dark night where batman dives out the window to save uh rachel but yet leaves the joker with all the people and the joker just leaves it's like why didn't he just kill everybody <laughs> i don't get it same kind of thing it's like uh all right scene over moving on <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've gotten, you know, we're getting the kind of final stretch here. And uh, we've got where Sam wants to take Oda um, to the bank to get the $4 million that Carl is now very much sweating over. <laughs> Poor guy sweating like bullets at this point. I love that pink outfit. He says, you know, pick something fancy. And she <laughs> she comes out with this like awesome pink outfit and hat. I thought that was really great. But it also <laughs> kind of works with the character. Like you said earlier, you know, Oda May, she says she's from Louisiana at one point. Like, that's a very southerny kind of outfit, and it works super well for, for the character. Totally. And actually, like, even with that, like, she's got her bag with her, and at one point, he's he's trying to get, like, ID or something out of her bag, and, like, she, like, dumps her bag over, and it's got, like, all this bizarre stuff that falls out of it. Like, she's got, like, golf tees and, like, <laughs> All these sort of things. So it's really just like a fun, again, like gag where I'm like, I wonder if they came up with that on the day of or or what the deal is. But it's just it says something interesting about uh, about that character. So I don't know. I thought that was definitely really funny. I, I think it's more of like that she may be a little bit of a kleptomaniac of some sort because she steals the the one lady's pen. Then she asks the other guy for his pen. <laughs> I think she just likes to collect stuff and carry it. Like, I don't know. It's a, it's a little like that a, could be. A, a shtick. I don't know. So next one then is uh, basically we cut over to, um, you know, all this sort of stuff, even between them doing that with the check, they don't want him to get the money. But I thought it was kind of funny because essentially it's just trolling Carl at this point. Like it doesn't really help Molly in any way. If the $4 million disappears, if anything, it's really going to put her more, in danger. So I don't know if he's just making bad choices or or what, but it just kind of seemed like a, a funny sort of choice. And he kind of goes on to keep trolling Carl now, whether it be when he kind of goes 
um, and sees him at his office and he's like typing, you know, murderer, Sam, 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 all, you know, all that on the keyboard, you know, <laughs> it, it just seemed like kind of a funny thing um, that he's doing that to him in the meantime. Like he's, he's haunting him. He's, he's tormenting him a little bit. I I was, I was surprised by that too, because it's, it seemed a little bit out of character as if more as he's more of a protector and not really a torturer. But once they get the check, finally, I was like, my brain, I guess I'd forgotten about the the nuns part of it. I was like, <laughs> I was like, he's going to have her put three million in Molly's name and then give Odomay a million and call it a day. And then there's this turn where he forces Odomay to sign the check over to a bunch of nuns. And I was like, I didn't see that coming at all. It was like a very out of left field kind of a thing but <laughs> it makes sense for his character but I was like for me and I'll get into this later I was surprised that he didn't use that money to benefit the people he actually cared about you know yeah I guess he just realized that that would just probably tie them into this mob group even more so it's probably just like I think he says it he's like you need to get rid of it to save yourself you know so I think I think it just comes down to that but then my question then becomes these poor nuns, what the heck is going to happen to them? Are they going to have to either give the money back or is the mob going to come after these poor nuns now? Yeah. How, how do the nuns explain, Hey, some lady just signed over a check for $4 million <laughs> to us for our, for our charity, for our church. Uh, hmm, let's look into this $4 million. Yeah. In, especially when Rita Miller turns up to be not a, uh, a real person. person or something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's flashing a little bit forward then now he's uh, haunting Willie, uh, to eventually what ends up to be his death. But I wanted to know how they did that boo on the mirror. I thought that was pretty cool how they, um, he kind of sketches it with his finger, but you don't obviously see him doing it just sort of shows up in real time. But that seemed like kind of a, a neat little effect. That was cool. That was really impressive. I was like, how did they do that? Like, you know, you can't necessarily rotoscope somebody out or like, you know, digitally remove them at that time. It, it was, it was interesting. I'm not really sure how they would have done it, but it was, it was yeah, pretty cool. I thought that was a fun effect. It was like a and Sam then, Raimi uh, kind of a style shot. Too. Exactly. Yes, totally. And then uh, the other kind of thing I was thinking with this, when he does start chasing Willie and kind of terrorizing him, that'd be like a cool way to be a superhero, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> dead man, you know, like, you they know, really, uh, yes, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, kind of, I was thinking about the DC dead man when I was sort of thinking about this, although he kind of did it more via, if I remember correctly, possessing people. I don't remember him necessarily interacting with stuff around people, but that'd be a good way to to kind of fight the bad guys because he kind of uses his abilities now through the rest of the end of the movie to kind of get back at the bad guys, even though he's never 100% directly responsible for ultimately what happens to them. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's interesting that he he kind of like pushes them to the point, but they end up getting themselves killed one way or the other. And... So again, we're having a moment, just like in the beginning with Sam, Willie gets basically sandwiched by a, tr a car and a bus, and his spirit gets thrown forward, and you, and you see the spirit get thrown, but you don't realize that it's, it's not Willie's body until he stands up, turns around, and sees his dead body between the bus and the, tr and the car, and it's this real shocking moment for him. And then the way they do this, the evil spirits or the, you know, whatever you want to call them, the, the ghost for hell, they come out of the shadows of, of like the street 
And it looks really cool as they kind of peel themselves up and they grab him and they suck him into oblivion. I thought that was really neat. They were awesome. Yeah, that for me is, again, one of the highlights of the effects work that they're doing here because they're really creepy. And it's such a clever idea that they're like these shadows that are already in that place and they kind of come unstuck of their objects and drag him off into yet another shadow and he kind of disappears. Yeah, that that seemed like a really fun way to kind of show that, you know, like not like the typical hellfire and brimstone sort of thing that you think about with hell or something like that. More this cool, like just like you're being dragged into shadow. That that was a really um, cool way to show that, particularly as like the anti sort of thing for like those like heavenly beams kind of coming from above and everything like that. So the next thing then is obviously uh, he's yet again, uh, Otome is finally trying to convince her that everything is real. And, and, you know, she's still kind of questioning it even after everything she's heard and seen so far. But he finally uses his little like um, penny trick again, like you brought up earlier. And it's that for luck. He kind of says it again. Um, you know, she says it's for luck. And that's like what finally, finally seals the deal. And Molly finally accepts that that all this sort of thing is happening and invites Otome in. And then we're kind of like off to the races, I feel like, after that. So I was happy that four luck came back and, and kind of played in at that point. I was happy too. But then when they're all inside the apartment, it's such a quick turn for Whoopi and, and Demi to go basically like, or Otome and Molly, I should say. Like, they've, you know, Molly hasn't trusted this person the entire movie or has been skeptical of her the whole movie. Minutes later, Demi, uh, Whoopi goes, okay, Sam, use my body so that you can make physical contact with the woman you love. And I'm like, what? It's it's so quick and it's such a, like a weird decision because it's just, it happens so quick and, and everybody's totally cool with it. No big deal. And so Sam steps into Otome's body, essentially controlling it. And they do this like weird thing. And I, I thought that they kissed, but really they don't. They just kind of like, there's just this kind of embracing, kind of holding each other. But the poster portrays it as if like they're having this like otherworldly sex scene. It's, it's super confusing. <laughs> and yeah. I think essentially they end up taking that from that first part of the movie and then just like doing that like ghost effect or whatever you want to call it for the movie poster. It's it's a choice. I mean, yeah, I think that's part of why I like I was saying earlier, why I was thrown off and thinking that there was more to this scene than there was. Like, I think, like I said, I thought this was when the pottery thing was, which, again, doesn't really make context in the movie now that I've seen it again. But uh yeah, I don't know. I thought there was, as you say, more to it that they reconnected on some kind of deeper level. But again, you know, even just the embrace and just touching her one last time, which is this whole thing and the whole thing that sparks off, you know, using her body and things like that. It's kind of a sweet moment. And the other thing is, they all already know that Carl is coming for her. Like, they know the clock is ticking. Yes, yeah, are the police response ever. Why yes. are they wasting time? Like, he said... I'm coming back at 11 o'clock to kill her. And they have no worry of, huh, this guy's on his way back here to come kill us. Let's just 
milk this for all we've got. We got a we, yeah, yeah. we got a good forty five minutes. Yeah, like I mean, was, maybe choose like a different location or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like they forgot well, what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Carl, obviously he does show up again and starts a chase where he's uh, you know, trying to track down and kill Odame and and maybe Molly and whatever. He's kind of clearly lost it. He is beyond sweaty at this point. <laughs> His face has got a complete sheen of sweat going. And poor guy meets his fate by that guillotine glass coming down on him. And it's funny, you know, Sam has got this like dead eyed stare as he like swings the thing and misses him. And then he like gets worried as it's coming down on him. But I all of a sudden when I saw that again, remembered seeing that scene when I was younger. So I don't know if my mom or somebody was watching it at home and I happened to walk in the room at that time or something. But I saw that and I was scared of that scene like that glass coming down that was rough that was like a rough way to go and i know there's some other like kind of bad deaths in this like how willie went out and things like that but that was rough that huge thing coming down and kind of bisecting him like that because he sees it coming that's the worst part he sees it coming. exactly yeah and (laughs) And it's his own fault you know it's kind of like you know he, he caused his own death in the same way as willie caused his own death so Ugh, yeah, not a good way to go out. <laughs> but again, kind of going back to this stuff now, like, you know, he gets killed by that shard. Willie's gone flying. Sam has shown up elsewhere away from his body. The guy in the hospital sort of like floats out of his body. Carl has something like that. He sort of steps out of his body. So again, I, I still can't quite figure out why Sam <laughs> ended up quite as far away from himself as he initially did. Yeah, it's um, it's a little confusing. It's, you know, Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of it is true, you know, for dramatic effect or cinematography. Uh, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, with Willie's, it makes sense because his because he gets hit by the bus, and you could see his spirit getting thrown. Maybe they're saying that the gunshot kind of established him to run off. I'm not really too sure, or he, or it happened so quickly he didn't realize he was shot at the time. Because well, I'm, I forgot to mention this earlier, but in the beginning when he's when he starts chasing willie down the street he stops and he kind of like holds his side where you assume he was shot i thought he was going to drop to his knees there until you realize that that's his ghost so it was kind of a weird thing um so now going back to the ghosts part of it is so once carl comes out of his own body and the ghosts begin to carry him away as opposed to when they did it with willie it looked really cool and and terrifying this looks really cheesy. It was not as good a quality of an effect or an edit or even, you know, the acting wasn't as good. And it was it was a bummer because it kind of ruined the first moment for me. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. And again, like any acting sort of thing aside, I think that the loft space seemed a little brighter. It wasn't where they were dragging him into like those deep street shadows, which I think helped them with that. Um, and I think the other weird thing is there was like another object kind of off behind him that it looked like he almost blended with. So yeah, I kind of agree with you there. It seemed like it wasn't as, um, you know, well done as necessarily the one before it. <laughs> so I thought one really cool payoff then at the end of the movie was that both of them were kind of able to see and hear him as like the final sort of heaven beam comes down, almost like. Uh, heaven or whatever it is that he's going to 
has sort of like granted them this one last moment that they can finally see him and kind of interact with him. And I, I don't know. I thought that was a really nice little payoff at the end. Yeah, it's it's it is cool that she can hear him and and they can both see him use like the aura of you know the beyond brings him into you know into view and they do this like what I'm calling the ghost kiss or the heaven kiss <laughs> and it's like that um slow motion kind of move in kiss for each other and it, it's a nice moment it's cool it looked it looked pretty good visually for the time I was impressed so it was it was kind of funny but I liked it yeah, no, they did a good job with that. And again, just even on the visual effects side, they did a good job with lining that all up and getting it to work. So we end on a flip of the ditto. <laughs> In this instance, Molly says, he says, I love you so much, Molly, I always have. And she says, ditto, you know, and it's cliche, but it was super cute. I was really happy that they kind of ended on that, uh, that little thing. And then uh, kind of as an aside to that, they had a really cool line. Um, where I don't know if it needed to be in the movie or not, but it, it was just, I don't know, really cool way to end it where he says, it's amazing, Molly, the love inside, you take it with you. I don't know, that that really struck me. I don't quite know why. And again, maybe it's because you're wrapped up in just sort of the moment at the end of the movie, but that's a really cool concept. You know, I really just liked the idea of that. And it was a cool line. I thought that was some really nice little piece of writing for that. It was a cool line. It was a very good ending line for him it was a really good moment <laughs> so i was talking about it before with the optical sort of thing so one interesting little thing that's worth pointing out is that uh, when he does walk off into heaven and join the other sort of spirits that you see sort of um you know converging around him this actually was a video effect this was actually done um digitally at the time it's the only to my knowledge digital effect that they did in the movie that wasn't an, an optical or analog um, effect. And I was reading an interesting little um, tidbit about it. And I, again, I won't dive in on it right now, but I just thought that that was unique to point out because so much of the rest of it was done with optical effects, but it took them about two weeks to uh, to put that in. And it was done at the very, very end of filming. So hmm. they kind of like rushed that in um, at the end there. But uh, otherwise, uh, that's our, our ghost review. So see ya, <laughs> billowy red shirt, Sam. It was a pleasure. <laughs> so i had a couple of final thoughts so and and this harkens back to the beginning when sam is in the hospital and he meets the old man i honestly thought that molly should have died in the end because they would have gone on to the great beyond together like he would have carried her with him kind of the same way the old man was waiting for his wife to to bring her on and you know, now she just kind of has to live the rest of her life without her love. You know, you assume she would find somebody else to love at some point, but um, it was, I thought it would have been a better, more powerful ending if, if she died too. I know it sounds depressing and dark, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's the Romeo and Juliet, Damn, Michael. but, but it's, <laughs> but it's like the Romeo and Juliet Shakespearean kind of tragedy um you know the the movie is very much shot like a play or like even the way it's edited a little bit it's it's like a play and it would have made sense in the ending for her to go out that way and the other part about that and the funnier side of it is now that he's dead 
one would assume that he's pretty young. He's not married. He probably doesn't have a will or any kind of like estate planning. This is what you think about when you're, you know, <laughs> in your late 30s and you have a home and children and everything. You're like, oh, you know, this guy doesn't have a will. You know, where does that money go? All this money. Like, huh, how is how is Molly going to pay for this giant apartment and this giant studio without his money? Like, she's an artist. She better start selling some of those sculptures she's got all over the place. I don't know. That's just my thought. So, I think- uh, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, again, maybe that was her selling that loft in uh, 2015 or whatever it was. Probably was. Making some money on that then. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at least going back to your previous point, like, I don't think you want to see Molly die. I think think people would have walked out of the theater if if both of them died. You know, I kind of like that he leaves it off on that see ya, that Sam see ya, you know, like... (laughs) It kind of gives you that lead in like, all right, you know, I'll I'll be waiting for you. I'll see you when you get here sort of thing. I don't know. Kind of kind of eludes that, that they'll be together again someday. Eh, killer. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, well, speaking of, I think we're going to we're going to kill this podcast off before we go too much longer. So final verdict, friends. What do we think of 1990s Ghost? B plus. B plus this guy. He's going with the, the letter grades. <laughs> I give it an A. I think it holds up. It's fun. It's campy. It's a good love story. I give it an A. Yeah, I, again, like, you know, I think I was the odd one out again this week because I think both of you kind of had a better recollection of this one than me. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think this movie checked off a lot of um, buttons for a lot of different people. I think that's why it had the appeal it had in the box office, why it was able to run as long as it did, why it made the money it did. Um, you know, this is a movie that I think has a little bit of everything for everybody. It's dramatic. It's funny. It's sad. It's full of love. I mean, they just put together a nice heartfelt movie. Um, and I think it stands the test of time. I think it holds up today. Um, you know, it has a few colorful <laughs> things here and there that are, probably signs of the time, but overall I think it really holds up well. Um, and I would certainly recommend it to anybody. I'm not going to give it a letter grade. I don't, I don't want to think about the school year yet. <laughs> no, it, it, it does hold up. I, I did enjoy it. There's just little, a couple of moments in there where I feel like if this movie was maybe 15 minutes longer, maybe even 10 minutes longer, we could have seen some of the moments that were a little bit of a few plot holes, but overall it's a very solid movie I've seen far worse movies as a love story go. I I do think that it went really well. I thought everybody, I thought the chemistry between the cast was really, really good. I don't know if I loved, you know, Tony as, as the, you know, Carl, I thought they could have gotten a different actor. He, he doesn't feel right in the role for some reason, but, um, Overall, I do feel that the movie is, is solid and I, and I do enjoy it a lot. It was a lot of fun to watch. And it was one of the few movies so far that I could say, hey, Dory, you want to watch a movie with me? And she's like, sure, because <laughs> she didn't want to watch Die Hard and she didn't want to watch Total Recall. So this one kind of paid off. So there you go. Awesome. <laughs> All right. That's going to be it for this month. Thank you very much for joining us, Angie. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thanks, guys. I love fun. all right so we'll see you all next month when we get to take a look at the september numbers and review postcards from the edge what movie (laughs) yeah (laughs) do what now oh boy here we go i think we're in for it (laughs) i think so too all right 
Bye, everybody. Thank you. See you next time. She's been married seven times before, and everyone was Henry. Henry! And now Willie Arthur. No, sir! Him an eighth old man of Henry. Henry the eighth, I am, I am. Henry the eighth, I am. Second verse, same as the first. I, Henry the eighth, I am. Henry the eighth, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. All right, all right, all right. Stop singing. I'll go anywhere you want to. Just don't sing anymore. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.